A police officer put in an impossible situation ends up in prison. It was more than seven years ago when former Montgomery, Alabama police officer Cody Smith tried to arrest a man after a string of property crimes. Gregory Gunn ran from the scene. Officer Smith chased after him on foot, deploying his taser several times without success. But when Gunn grabbed a painter's pole on a family's porch, raised and lunged at Smith, he shot Gunn in the arm, fearing for his life. Ultimately, four years later, Officer Smith was convicted of manslaughter for killing Gunn and sentenced to 14 years in prison. Now there is new hope for the former officer's family in their years-long fight for justice. Former Montgomery police officer Cody Smith's wife, Ashley, is my guest on the podcast. Thank you, Ashley, for being here. Thanks for having me. You know, when I heard about your story, I couldn't help but think how similar it is to what we've watched play out in in Minnesota here. A different justice system, it seems, in a way, for our police officers. But I know this happened in a red state, and I spoke a bit about what happened at the beginning here, but but speak more to that. Take us back to that night. It was February of 2016. Just set the scene as the, these crimes had been plaguing the community there. So in Montgomery, there was, and this specific neighborhood was just known for having a high volume of crime. Um, Cody was known for being very proactive on the streets as an officer and cleaning up areas that were high in crime. And so they had taken him out of his assigned district and put him on what they call a detail um, and just said, hey, this the, the crime here is out of control. The break-ins are rampant. We need you in this area stopping everything that moves. If you see something or someone is looks suspicious, anything you see, stop it. Stop it and talk. Let's figure out who's committing these crimes. And so that's what he did. He went in that neighborhood. He was patrolling and he saw someone walking down the street. He stopped them just to see, like, hey, it's two in the morning. What are you doing out walking in the street? To start out, Mr. Gunn was compliant. And then as they were talking, he kept putting his hands in his hoodie pocket. Uh, during that conversation, for Cody's safety, he decided he should frisk him to make sure he didn't have anything in his pockets. He complied to the frisk. As Cody got to his waistband area, he felt an object, was unsure what the object was. And so during that, he um, radioed for backup because the guy started kind of sidestepping on the car like he was going to try to get away. And Cody could tell things were about to shift. And so he radioed for backup. As soon as he radioed for backup, um, Mr. Gunn shoved him and, and took off running. So the second that he shoved him, that changes everything. You know, that's a charge right there. So in the moment of the frisk, he might not have had a charge. Um, but the second that he shoved him and took off running, that's, you can't do that. You don't put your hands on an officer. And so, um, he pursued him during the pursuit. He continued to reach into that waistband area at this point. He's still not sure what's in his waistband. So for his safety, he draws his taser, um, tells him to show his hands, continues to to holler commands to stop. Um, he continues to reach in that front area. So Cody tases him. He tased him four times. Um, he was unresponsive to the taser. So he swapped to his duty or, or to his baton. Um, and he's striking him in large muscle groups as trained in the academy with the baton. 
Um, he's unresponsive to the baton. At this point, they're, they end up on a front porch, and he's done everything. He's tried all the non-lethal force to gain compliance when Mr. Gunn grabs a steel-enforced painter's pole. It's the middle of the night. It's dark. Cody doesn't know initially what he's grabbed, but he sees him bend over and go to pick up an object, a large object, um, and he hears like clanking sounds. So he, he's suspecting like maybe a shovels or something like that. So when he bends over and he comes up towards him, he can tell now that he's got some sort of pull. He's charging him with this pull. At this point, he's used everything else. He's used the taser. He's used the baton. He's put in a position where he has to draw his duty weapon um, to defend himself. Because if Mr. Gunn had incapacitated Cody with this pull, um, he could have taken his own gun and used his own gun against him. Um, in a scenario like that, they're trained to respond. Um, the second that Mr. Gunn armed himself with this pole, um, Cody was forced to make a decision to defend himself in the community. So he shot him. Um, and as a result, Mr. Gunn passed from that shooting. And this autopsy, Ashley, shows basically, you know, your husband's story completely checks out. I know body camera footage is very new. Um, he hadn't uh, been used to turning it on just yet. They'd only the department only had it for a, a couple weeks and it would have fallen off anyway in the chase back then uh, with how body cameras uh, were new to, to policing. But the autopsy shows seven gunshot wounds concentrated around the arm that gun was using to hold the painter's pole. There's cocaine uh, in gun system as well. But how is the Montgomery, Alabama Police Department after the, the, this happens? It seems there are the, these headlines and, and such reinforcing the fact that he followed his training. They don't suspect anything will happen. Uh, again, this is someone who's not complying and there's all of these crimes happening in the neighborhood and they can't just you know let this guy walk away. So right after the shooting took place, Cody did go to Mr. Gunn on the ground and try to perform life-saving measures. He radioed for medics. He radioed shots fired first, obviously. He radioed that shots had been fired. He radioed for medics. He tried life-saving measures and he knew, he pretty much knew at that point that there wasn't going to be any saving his life. So the first responding officer that showed up on the scene came to um, Cody was lying on the ground um, and he was pulling on his uh, uniform on his shirt and his vest, trying to get it off of him because he said he couldn't breathe. So he was just kind of overcome by what had happened. Um, and then immediately after that, he was told by investigators almost immediately after the shooting that it was going to be a clean shoot, that he followed his training. He did his use of force as he was, trained to do that everything was going to be fine. And um, they went ahead and called him in for a statement within a couple hours of the shooting. He gave a statement and now they don't do that anymore. That's not protocol in an officer involved shooting. They get, I think it's like 72 hours now before they're um, required to give their first statement. And so it was just very, um, it was handled very differently than how they handle things now. Um, so he was initially told by investigators, he shouldn't have a problem, that he followed his training. Um, and then things shifted. The, the shooting happened on February 25th of 2016. And by March 2nd, they were arresting him and charging him with murder. And the Montgomery County District Attorney was up for, for re-election. Talk about uh, how politics, in your opinion, played a role. I think that based off of Cody's training and how he handled the situation. I think it was fair for the department and the investigators to say he shouldn't have been 
he shouldn't have had any problems. He shouldn't have been charged or prosecuted at all. Ferguson was not long before the situation with Cody. There was a lot of rioting and stuff still going on, a lot of heavy politics in terms of police use of force. Our nation was just really taking a shift against law enforcement. And you had Antifa going around and throwing bricks through buildings and setting things on fire. And I think that the city of Montgomery as a whole was just afraid. I think that they made a decision out of fear. I think the DA made a decision out of politics um, and that his reelection would be damaged if he didn't prosecute. Um, And I think the city made a decision out of fear. And um, I think that they made a martyr, a political martyr out of my husband. So again, Ashley, this is 2016 and three years would pass before your husband stands trial in 2019. Just, just explain that and, and what ultimately happens. Um, so the timeline was just really, it, it was very extensive. Um, the court system just takes, it already takes a long time, but we had judges just recusing themselves left and right. Um, none of the judges wanted to handle the case. Um, It ended up getting a change of venue, so out of the city of Montgomery, and um, a couple hours away, it was changed over into Dale County, Alabama, which is where we stood trial. Um, He did have an immunity hearing um, on our Stand Your Ground law in Alabama, where basically a uniformed officer has the opportunity to speak to their training and the facts of the case and how they handled themselves. And um, it gives them an opportunity for immunity against prosecution due to the fact that they were operating in the capacity of their job. Um, That immunity hearing was not granted to Cody. The judge that ruled on that immunity hearing um, was a Montgomery judge before the recusal. He had taken the case and He denied Cody's immunity, but then made some remarks that were proven to be um, prejudicial, I guess you could say. He made some unnecessary remarks on a public platform that ended up causing him a forced recusal. He was forced to recuse from Cody's case, but then they didn't let give they didn't give Cody an opportunity for a second immunity hearing after that judge was forced to recuse they let that judge's decision stand and still sent him to trial based off of that immunity decision uh, that's probably been one of the most disappointing parts up until Cody's conviction was if you have decided that this judge is not able to handle this case without a prejudice opinion on the matter how can you let the decision he's made prior to that recusal stand. That doesn't seem right, but that is what happened. And he wasn't granted an opportunity for another hearing on that. Um, So we went to trial in 2019 in Dale County. It was five days. It was a jury trial. Um, And on the fifth day, he was convicted of heat of passion manslaughter. So he was exonerated from the murder charge that he was charged with, but he was convicted of manslaughter. So it's January of 2020. I know that he's sentenced to 14 years in prison. You immediately file an appeal. He's released on an appeal bond in March of 2020. Then the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals denied Cody's appeal. 
The Montgomery County DA requested the court revoke Cody's bond, and then he ultimately goes to prison in May of 2020. We're showing some headlines here from this story. But leaving you and and your three daughters, uh, I know you have three young children uh, behind also, but just paint that picture of what it's like to have him gone now for the last year and a half and in prison for, for all of this. Uh, how are you coping and, and how are your, your kids coping? Um, so it's been tough. Uh, we actually uh, had a had started a business um, landscaping whenever everything went after the conviction, you know, he's a felon. So how are you supposed to kind of rebuild your life even on that, that two year window where he was out on bond, you know, what do you do? He was a law enforcement officer. That was his passion. That was his job. So when that went away, you know, how do you restart, you know? So, um, we had my parents helped us start a landscaping business and he just kind of went into that. And we had a year, I guess, maybe not quite into that. Um, when they revoked his bond, they actually revoked his bond prematurely based off of case law. His bond should have stayed in place until we had that certificate of final judgment, which actually wasn't issued until, the end of 2022 or January, 1st of January, 2023. Um, so several months um, prematurely, his bond was revoked because um, the state just said it was taking too long. The process was taking too long. COVID had a lot to do with that. Um, COVID hit the nation right after Cody came home on that appeal bond. Um, so everything was just taking a lot longer than it normally would within the court system on appeal. Um, so, when they revoked that bond, um, they gave us 10 days a notice 10 days before he had to turn himself in. So we just kind of hunkered down and uh, loved on each other for 10 days. And uh, me and him went away for a few days of that time and then came back and spent the rest of the week with the kids. And um, it was hard because I was like, what are we going to do? You know, um, you know, I had this, this life and these kids in this house and, responsibilities and how am I supposed to do all this by myself? We just had to trust that God had a plan. And so that's what we did. And our church family just surrounded us with love and support and our families surrounded me and our girls and we prayed through it and he's been gone and it's been hard and we get to see him once a month. But I just, I went to real estate school and I got a real estate license and I started, I just had to figure it out. You know, I just had to figure it out because I couldn't, I couldn't let everything else around us fall apart whenever we were already losing him in a sense, you know? And so um, I immediately started uh, figuring that out and also advocating for him because up to that point I had not really, we hadn't, we'd been kind of told not to speak out and don't talk about it and stay quiet. And, you know, I think that the second that they revoked his bond, something in me was just, I said, I can't, we're not going to stay quiet anymore. Um, this is not right. And he doesn't deserve this. And our family doesn't deserve this. Our children don't deserve this. Enough is enough. And so I started speaking out. No, good for you. I'm th- thankful that you, that you have. What what does Cody's uh, story, though, just say about our, our justice system? It certainly has to have uh, shaken you to, to your core and to, and to what these men and women do to, to serve and protect uh, each day. It is a really broken system. There is so much that is just, it's wrong. Um, It's backwards. You know, what should be right is wrong. And what's wrong is treated right. And you've got criminals 
running the streets and officers afraid to do their jobs and good men, good men, um, either leaving law enforcement because they know they can't do their jobs without fear of prosecution or, you know, I think we're at an extreme disadvantage. I think that the criminals, especially in the city of Montgomery, they know they're in charge. They know that they have the upper hand and they know that law enforcement officers are afraid and they are capitalizing on that in a big way. So good men who should be doing this job are not doing it anymore. Um, they're desperate for manpower on the streets because they don't have anyone that's willing to do the job anymore. And so I think that that's not just in Montgomery. I think that's everywhere. Law enforcement officers are treated with utmost disrespect. They are not treated with any sort of authority or respect in the way that they should be. And it is causing turmoil across the nation. I understand, Ashley, there's a renewed sense of hope with what's called a Rule 32 petition to, to the court. But explain that and where things stand right now. When Cody's appeal was denied by the Alabama Supreme Court at the end of 2022, they denied it in substance by saying, we can't help you in the way that you're asking for help from us but we can see that you deserve post-conviction relief. If the facts of this case are as they appear, and they are, he shouldn't be sitting in prison right now, and he should have never had a conviction at all. So essentially the Alabama Supreme Court is doubting uh, the effectiveness of his counsel through all of this, and this gave you some hope. Yes. So they said... Um, that this is the most astonishing failure that they have ever seen in a criminal case. And based off of that, they felt like we should file something against our representation, stating the failures that they had um, during trial and some failures in the appellate process. Had they done what they were supposed to do, a properly instructed jury should have never convicted him of this crime. And they advised us to go forward with that. And from my understanding, that is the first time that the Alabama Supreme Court has ever used language advising someone how to move forward with, you know, with a case or um, basically legal advice. They told us this is what we suggest you do. And so that's what we did. And we filed that um, last month, the end of last month. And then you're just waiting to hear uh, where to go from here once the response, I know, is filed. I also wanted to point out uh, that that your plight caught the attention of the Pipe Hitter Foundation. It's a nonprofit dedicated to supporting service members, helping them find justice and, quote, reforming a system that too often second guesses our heroes. This had to be something that gave you a little relief. But do you finally feel like your story is getting out there, that it will matter and I, and I think it's also important to touch on, too, Ashley, why is it important for people to pay attention to, to a case like yours? So, um, yes, the Pipe Hitter Foundation has made a huge difference for us. They've come alongside us and they've rallied with us and they're helping us tell our story. And their their support in large has just been um, a tremendous blessing to our family. I think stories like this being told is so, so important because... I think it goes against the narrative that is so tremendously being pushed by the media and by politicians across the nation. I think it's only fair that people see both sides of the situation. This is a tragedy. 
Um, it's a tragedy for the loss of the person who died the night of the shooting. I never want to be misunderstood as minimizing that loss. That is a tragedy. It shouldn't have had to end that way. But there are two sides to this tragedy. And what has happened to my husband unjustly is also a tragedy. And I think it's important. Um, it's happening so much more than I think people realize. Um, I have had people reach out to me from across the nation, different states, other wives whose, whose husbands are in law enforcement um, that are in very, very similar situations. And I think bringing this to light gives them the courage to stand up and speak out too. Well, Ashley Smith, we certainly wish you the best. Thank you so much for, for the time and we'll continue to follow uh, your story for sure. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. And that will do it for this episode of Liz Collin Reports. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.